Awakening the mind is a gradual transformation from our initial days of doing techniques, following instructions, striving for some apparent goal, and struggling to get something. And almost all of us start our Dharma, on our Dharma path in that way. But in time, it transforms quite dramatically to become a rather joyful acceptance of a long-enduring mind, which is really a lifestyle of Dharma rather than a practice of Dharma. And it is this transformation that we're all embarked upon. And in my few years of practice, there have been a few lessons that I'd like to share with you. And I, I call them lessons, but in fact, they've become really the understanding I have of life on the Dharma path. And the first lesson is to learn the need for and how to commit to a path worthy of your efforts. Secondly, I'd like to speak about acceptance, accepting the way as it is. Third, I'd like to speak about the necessity of practicing impeccably and what that means. Fourth, I'd like to talk about the joy of persevering. And fifth, I'd like to acknowledge the faith to express our gratitude. When I say, when I say to commit to a path worthy of your efforts, we need to look at what it means to make a commitment, what the nature of a commitment is, how a commitment actually is formed. Because a commitment is a, a living thing. It's not a one-time thought or intention, or even action, behavior. But it is a living, dynamic, growing thing, and it only survives if you care for it. And in this practice, as in any practice or any commitment, it is developed through a lot of repetition. And for this practice, as you already know, it takes a great spirit of repetition. I mean, how many breaths do you think you're going to have to watch? <laughs> I mean, it's more than a few. But Krishnamurti had an interesting comment. He says, I do yoga every day, but I've never made a habit of it. And I think there's a lesson there because 
How can you do something every day and not make a habit of it? It requires a renewed present moment commitment, first time, fresh attention each time. And that's the only way that a commitment stays alive is that it is something you invest in on an ongoing basis. So the commitment to awakening or your path or your, your practice to awaken cannot be formulaic, meaning there's no a kind of a, an automatic button you can push and just have it happen. It takes a creative, dynamic, engaged interest on an ongoing basis. It is a lifetime of wise choice make a commitment. You know, when you think of someone or when you hear of someone that has a 20-year commitment, 30-year commitment to practice, to a relationship, to uh, recovery of one sort or another, they didn't start out with a 20-year commitment, the idea, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fulfill a 20-year commitment. That's not how they start out. When I went to the monastery in Burma, I didn't start out with a commitment to do five years. It was more like, well, we'll see how it goes, <laughs> you know, day by day, you know, and it ends up being a commitment only in hindsight and to the extent that it's alive today in this moment. So in that sense, we should really consider, and it is wise to consider that meditation is more like a marathon than a hundred-yard dash. But initially in our, in our practice, or in our commitment, our confidence rests on our self. And our self-confidence is a very fragile, tenuous, changeable thing. You know how fragile your self-confidence is. But as we develop the qualities of mind, of the awakened mind, the paramis that we've spoken about off and on and that we reflect on each evening, as we develop these inner qualities that provide the foundation for the freeing of the mind, our faith moves from trust in ourself to real deep and unshakable confidence in the Dharma. The Dharma as the way things are, the Dharma as the teachings of the Buddha, the Dharma as this moment's experience. And when we can have faith and confidence in the Dharma, it's much more stable because it is supported by wisdom than faith in ourself. So in this work of walking the path, we, we initially plant the seed of awakening in our hearts, or we you know, tend the already present seed of awakening so that it sprouts and begins to grow. But it requires humility. Let's face it, 
we're brought up in this culture and not only this culture. And by the time we are adults, we are pretty full of ourselves. And it's really hard to find the room for any more instruction because we know it all, or we think we do. And so, how is it that we're going to allow in the possibility of another way of relating to the world without just shattering our self-confidence, without just kind of pulling the rug out from underneath us? But how can we open to and accept guidance that is not easy to accept. When we listen to the Dharma, when we listen to the teachings of the Buddha, when we listen to the truth as articulated by the Buddha and disciples and teachers from that time, we hear of a different way. We hear of something that we didn't know before. Or we hear teachings that are counterintuitive to our experience. And sometimes they you know, challenge our opinions and views. And in the process, we begin to disentangle our wrong understanding of things, reframing our experiences in life through a different lens of perception. And within that hearing of the truth, there's much to inspire, to entertain, and to encourage us on the path. And it is often that we consciously must extend ourselves beyond the range of comfort. Imagine if you only allowed yourself to feel comfortable in your practice, you really wouldn't get very far. And so our teacher, Saito Upandita, puts it this way. He says, it is nobler to live a worthy life than a successful one. And what he means by that is it is noble to really try to awaken, even though you may not you know, succeed as you imagine, but to make that effort to live a noble life, to make that commitment and to keep putting forth the effort energy to try to understand, to awaken, and to the degree that we do, of course, we will awaken. A decisive commitment is much more than just what we know and the effort we make. When I was first here on staff at the Meditation Center in 78, during the three-month course that year, we were told that there was a Burmese monk in America who was, had been invited by some of his students, and he would be coming to visit during the three-month course. And Jack Cornfield was teaching at the time, and, he, and so he told us about this monk who was uh, a scholar in, in Burma in his early years. And then at somewhere in his early adult years, he decided to undertake practice in order to see if what he was studying and teaching was really the way. And so he wandered off into a place where he could do some practice, and there were too many people there that were familiar with him or that he knew, so he wandered a little further away, found himself a cave, went into the cave, 
and practiced there doing his own stuff, doing his own practice for 16 years alone. After which time he realized that his teacher had died. And so he came out of the cave, went to his former teacher's monastery, and indeed his teacher had recently passed away. And so undertaking his responsibilities as a, a student or a, a junior to this monk, this abbot, he stayed in the monastery and took care of the uh, arrangements of the death of his teacher and spent enough time there to find another abbot for the monastery. And after he'd been out for a year, he decided to go back into his cave. So he went back into his cave for another 17 years practicing alone. So now he'd been 34, 33 years practicing alone in the cave. He came out and he started to teach and he was coming to teach us. <laughs> now remember, I did two week retreat before that. But I was impressed. I mean, I was really impressed. Now, how is it that you're impressed by a wizened old Burmese monk that doesn't speak English, and when he sits up here, he tells you, pay attention? Partly it was because of the, I just admired the commitment that it must have taken to spend 32, three years in a cave practicing, doing anything. You know, even reading, whatever, I mean, whatever. But he was practicing. I mean, I have no idea what his accomplishment or attainment was or might have been. I didn't hear rumors. I just didn't have a clue. But just the commitment was admirable. And it sparked in me, I want to be like that. I didn't know what I was saying. I didn't know what it meant. But I knew that I admired it so much, I, I wanted that. And in some ways, it, it awoke in me an aspiration to awaken. So a commitment to a path worthy of our efforts. What's a path? What is the path of awakening? If we're going to make all this effort, as we all are, what is it worth making the effort for? One, I know this sounds a little hard, but the way I understand it now is any goal you can reach is not worthy of your effort. Now, what's that mean? If you set the bar so low that you can reach it in a weekend or on a seven-day, nine-day retreat, that's not worthy. But on the other hand, we don't want the goal to be so far away that it's just, you know, we're defeated before we begin. So how do we understand the path? Is the path a goal, a place, an experience to have, to get, to become? Or is it really the direction we're moving? I've come to see that it's much more supportive of my efforts to 
consider the path as a direction that I can realign myself with on a moment-to-moment basis rather than a goal of some experience or some understanding to try to strive for and to get, finally. And in this way, what we spend our time doing is making the adjustment to bring our behavior, our thoughts, our speech, our interests in line with our aspiration. And we can do that moment to moment, moment to moment. And if we keep doing that, we will reach the goal, whatever that goal happens to be. Gandhi says of the path, I know the path. I rejoice to walk on it. I weep when I slip. He or she who strives never perishes. I have implicit faith in that promise. Though, therefore, from my weakness, I fail a thousand times, I will not lose faith. There's that clarity of commitment, clarity of direction, and the humility that accepts not perfect yet, not there yet, and being willing to to take the next step. That's a path worthy of your efforts. You know the, the space shuttle that, the, that we send up from Florida to arrive at the space station up there? And there is this, I'm sure, very complex a computer program that, that tells, the, tells the shuttle how to get there. You know, you go so many miles this way and so many miles that way and you change your direction. And, yeah. Well, eventually, after a few days, it gets there. It takes off from Florida and it arrives at this little spot somewhere up there in space called the station. 98% of the time, the space shuttle is off course. 98% of the time, it's off course. And yet, it still gets there. And it gets there because there are just innumerable mid-course corrections along the way. That's like our practice. 98% of the time, we're off course. But when we notice that and we make the correction, we will end up heading in the direction towards the goal of our aspiration. And so, just because you find yourself off course, really out on a limb, totally lost in some fantasy, daydream, you know, no faith, no energy, no mindfulness, and couldn't care less, you know what? That doesn't matter. You can, in that moment, make a mid-course correction and put yourself back on the path. The path is totally forgiving unlike ourselves. So, committing to a path worthy of your efforts. The second is to, or the second lesson I learned is to accept the way as it is. 
And this accept the way as it is, is all about letting go. We have so many ideas about ourselves, about the path, about what's right, what's wrong. Ultimately, we have to let it all go. And simplify, simplify, simplify. If your practice is complex, if your life is distracted, if your mind is entangled, simplify, simplify, simplify. And the only way to do that is to let go, let go, let go. I'm sure you've seen how entangled the mind is in its stuff. I mean, it's just unbelievable skein, a tangled skein of thoughts and feelings and beliefs and memories and plans and aspirations and guilt trips and fear. And it's just like, when I first looked at the mind, and I wasn't seeing very clearly either, I thought, how in the world could anybody ever figure it out? I mean, really, you look at this mess in here, and, you, and, and here's somebody who figured it out, how to disentangle that mess. I'll listen to them. One of my favorite poets, contemporary poets, that I, I really appreciate a lot is Galway Cannell. And he wrote this prayer, which is uh, a Dharma aspiration. Whatever happens, whatever what is is, is what I want. Only that, but that. Whatever happens, or I should say, whatever happens. Whatever, what is, is, is what I want. Only that, but that. To accept the way as it is takes a tremendous balance of mind, equipoise. It takes the, the grace to accept the impossible. and to dance with it, to just dance with conditions that are just impossible to dance with. Because of this very complex life, there's, there's just a lot asked of us or demanded of us. And I don't think it's only because we're in the 21st century living in the West. Life is complex, has been for everybody throughout time. Don Juan, as I mentioned, great teacher to Carlos Castaneda. And there's a teaching in, I think it's in the Journey to Ixlan, where Don Juan is talking about how the path you choose in life, there are many paths. And in one sense, it really doesn't matter which path you choose. Because, you know, in this culture, you do one thing and it's praised. If you did the same thing in another culture, it's blamed. So in a sense, what we do is the But it's necessary to do it impeccably. He calls it controlled folly. And he says, my acts, my acts are sincere, but they're only the acts of an actor because everything I do is controlled folly. 
Everything I do in regard to myself and my fellow man or woman is folly because does it really matter? It matters that we do it impeccably, that we walk our path, that we walk our talk, so to speak. In the journey, on the journey, sometimes we're standing and we're looking at the path and we're thinking, oh, it's just, it's just too much. It's too vast. The immensity of time, the immensity of complexity, the challenge to disentangle is just overwhelming. For that, we need to kind of bring our attention down to the present moment details of our life and just take one step with awareness. But when we get so entangled in the details of our life, we have to balance that with a reflection on the vastness of what it is we're trying to do. It's like a tightrope walker. You know the tightrope walker? They're this little person, or big person, a person standing on this little, little thing way up in the air. And then they're carrying this huge, long, heavy pole. Why do they carry that pole? It's because it's heavy. It's got some gravity to it. And all it takes is when you start to lean one way too far, you just move your fingers a little bit on that pole and it shifts the center of gravity back. And if you start to fall the other way, you only have to move that pole just the slightest distance in your fingers and it'll pull the center of gravity back. It's like that in our practice. Keeping a balance between the immensity of time, of conditioning, of the challenge we face, and the detail of just moving our fingers, moving our feet just one millimeter at a time in order to stay balanced. I've seen, not only on the Dharma path of awakening, but in many areas of our life, it's easy to get overwhelmed. And one of the current overwhelming conditions that I feel concerned about, and I, I'm not asking you to be concerned about it, I just want to show you how, it, how you can stay balanced in the face of overwhelming uh, conditions. You know, our environment is really degrading. It's really degraded, it's being degraded. Uh, global warming is not a myth. You know, it's real. And, you know, it is such an immense problem. You know, it's just, it's just so easy to get overwhelmed and to feel cynical about our chances of ever encouraging our government or any other government really to do anything about it. So when you really open up to that and you take a look at it, what can you do? keep from being just overwhelmed into kind of falling and from falling into cynicism or you know feeling disempowered or just being like oh what the heck buy my SUV and go for it plant a tree bring your concern down to earth 
put it in the ground and plant your intention, plant your aspiration, plant your, your feet in the ground. Because through that simple, immediate, direct, tangible, small act, you're addressing the big picture. It's essential for your balance of mind. Accept the path, or accept the path as it is. Commit to a path worthy of your efforts. And then to practice impeccably. To just keep your eyes open. To observe. To, be, to practice in such a way that you cannot blame yourself. Now, as Krishnamurti asks, who but yourself? knows whether you're impeccable. Certainly we don't. You know, you can fool us, easy. But you can't fool yourself. There's always one person that knows how you're doing, and that's you. If you make less than impeccable effort, you will not feel happy. As Saito Pandita uh, mentioned to Kamala when she came, she, he said, you know, to, to do this practice, you must be willing to invest everything. Less than everything is not good enough. Well, that's, that's demanding. So how can we, how can we practice impeccably and again not be overwhelmed? It's just like planting a tree. You just do this moment. That's all we can do. We can't be impeccable tomorrow. We can't be impeccable yesterday. We can only be impeccable now. There will be the inevitable ups and downs of practice. Practice comes together, practice falls apart. If you learn, if you take anything from this retreat, take that. You can make whatever effort you want, Practice will come together and practice will fall apart because everything is constantly changing. And to understand that, and so too is your commitment, your impeccability, your effort, it's changing. But, within, with, but in any moment, we can recognize that we are less than invested, less than making our best effort. When I was first practicing in Burma, back in the mid-80s, I went to the monastery where Upandita was the abbot. And in this monastery, when you arrive, they give you the schedule. And the schedules wake up at 3, sit and walk alternate hours until 11 o'clock at night. You are allowed four hours of sleep. Okay. So... I was there to practice, and I made every, I had every intention of doing just that. But I thought, surely there's a grace period. But it was starting first day, four hours. So I set my alarm, and after four hours, I got up and kind of slogged through the first few days, and it was not easy. But, you know, after a little while, it got a little easier, and it and, um, wasn't such a struggle. 
Then one night, I, I don't know how it happened, I, I, I slept five hours. I must have set the alarm clock wrong, or it went off and I just shut it off and didn't notice it, or I don't know what, but I slept five hours. Well, in those days, we were reporting to Upandita every day. And as you may have heard from other stories, he is a demanding and fierce uh, teacher. And it's, it's not casual practicing with him. So we were reporting to him every day. I was at two o'clock. So I went for my two o'clock interview. And I walked in, and usually you would walk in, kind of turn a little corner and walk across the room, bow to him, and give you a report, tell him what you've been experiencing, and he would, it would be translated, and he would give you back a few suggestions. Well, this day, I walked in, just came through the screen door, and he's sitting in his chair over there, and he says, how many hours did you sleep last night? <laughs> I wanted to say, I only sleep four. But I had a commitment to tell the truth. So I said, well, so I, don't, I, I made a mistake. I, I, you know, I slept five hours last night. He looked at me without, without severity, just, you know, please try harder. End of interview. Oh, okay. Okay. Well, I, I had the bent of mind that there wasn't anybody going to be harder on me than me. And I wasn't going to be pushed around by him. Yeah. So, so I said, okay. So I made this vow to myself. Wake up, get up. Don't look at the clock. You, wait, you still set it for four hours. And if it happens to go, if you happen to sleep four hours, then get up when it rings. But if you wake up before it rings, get up and start practicing. That was the vow. How many hours of sleep do you need a night? Let me ask you something. Do you really know? Not unless you've really tested yourself. And you really, I mean, you really tested yourself. How many hours of sleep do you need a night? It's not what you think. But until you find out, until you practice so implacably that you don't waste your time sleeping when it's not necessary, you won't know. That's what practicing impeccably is about. Finding out for yourself all about your life. Don't take my word for it. Don't take the Buddha's word for it. Don't take Annie or Kamala's word for it. You have to find out for yourself. It's your body, it's your mind, it's your life. <clears throat> Sri Nizagadatta Maharaj says, Truth is in the discovery. The unknown has no limits. To discovery, there's no beginning and no end. Question the limits. Go beyond. Set yourself apparently impossible tasks. This is the way. Apparently impossible. Set yourself apparently impossible tasks and discover what you don't yet know. Impeccability, Don Juan says, begins with a single act that has to be deliberate, precise, and sustained. Deliberate, precise, and sustained. Sounds like practice, doesn't it? Impeccability begins with a single act that has to be deliberate, precise, and sustained. If that act is repeated long enough, one acquires a sense of unbending intent, which can be applied to anything else. 
If that is accomplished, the path is clear. One thing leads to another until the spiritual warrior realizes his or her full potential. Impeccability grows unbending intent that is so necessary for clearing the path. So committing to a path worthy of your efforts, accepting the way as it is, practicing impeccably. The fourth lesson I've learned or had thrust upon me, if you will, is to persevere joyfully. And that means to be patient with your limitations because we have, we have, currently we have limitations. But to persevere, not just to get rid of them or overcome them, but just to persevere in your efforts to move forward in the direction of your aspiration, you will overcome those limits. You will go beyond those limits, whatever they are. And it takes developing two qualities of mind. One is endurance, and the other is resilience. Because, frankly, we need to learn to endure. We need to learn to endure our habits, endure pain, endure difficulties, challenges of all kinds. Because they'll come. It can't be avoided. And to, to, to accept that, to, to, to understand that this is the nature of the path. And not to be kind of like, you know, whiny and oh, poor me, and what a bummer. You know, it's hard. Jeez, there's thorns on the path. Oh, darn. You know, maybe I should go a different way. I mean, this is the way it is. Don't believe, believe me. It's going to be tough. But, hello, you're making all this effort. Walk the path of awakening. So, just in knowing that this is the path and being able to, you know, commit to it, is and cultivates or fuels or, or feeds that joy in the mind when you practice impeccably. When I was practicing early in my, my years, I heard about this Chinese monk whose teaching was about developing the long enduring mind. And this, this, this Chinese monk, it was said that he would, he would undertake a practice for 10 years. You know, he would do you know, bowing practice for 10 years, devotional practice for 10 years, metta for 10 years, insight for 10 years, you know, uh, Amitabha Buddha uh, chanting for 10 years. And so he did these practices till he was 80. Then he started teaching, and he taught for 40 years. He was killed during the Chinese Revolution, I've heard, in 1949 at 120. And his teaching was all about developing the long, enduring mind. The mind that can put up, can just endure however long it is. The path, the pain, the fear, the doubt, you endure it. And it doesn't mean only this macho. I'm sure, you, I'm sure you've tried that with your pain. Macho doesn't work. It's enduring softly, 
being pliable, being resilient, being malleable, so that you can adapt to the conditions, but still endure. Not turn away from, this is the way it is. But not set yourself as a rigid pole in the ground that's gonna break off, but rather like the bamboo tree that can sway in the wind. That is so flexible, its top can touch the ground, and when the, 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 the threat is over, it stands back up again. Because we will be knocked over. Our path is going to push us really hard at times. And being resilient enough to come back. Stand up and start over again. Taking delight in practice. So much of practice is so mundane. I mean, I'm sure you've seen. I mean, most of your time here is just the most ordinary, mundane, nothing special. I mean, it's just sit, walk. How many times do you look at the bulletin board today? I mean, is that a spiritual practice or what? I mean, you gotta go to the toilet, you gotta eat, you gotta get dressed, you gotta bathe, you gotta, some of you gotta ring the bell so many times a day and just come in here and how many times have you made the sitting nest, you know, to sit down? I mean, it's just so ordinary and mundane. If you're looking for something special to do, you know, there's, there's a couple of moments during the day when maybe, but mostly, and so how can we, how can we make this so boringly mundane life a spiritual practice? Get interested. Really look at the most ordinary mundane things because, you know, we don't see it yet. We really don't know what it's like to brush our teeth, to comb our hair to go to the toilet. You know, we do it every day, but we've never paid attention quite like we're asked to here. You know, someone was telling me today, you know, finally, after coming to these years and years of retreat, I finally got into eating meditation. It's unbelievable what you can taste in a cracker with peanut butter or a raisin or whatever it is that you... If you're there for it, there's a universe of experience. But getting that joy, getting that interest in the mundane is essential. It's not about going off to some exotic country, you know, living in some exotic you know, cave or monastery or chanting mumbo-jumbo, something that you don't really understand. You know, it's not about that at all. It's about knowing how to brush your teeth mindfully. And that's where we cultivate the ground for awakening in the most ordinary experience. That's why we can practice at home just as well as here. Is there ever a day in your life you don't have the opportunity to practice patience. <laughs> you know, even if you live in a monastery in silence, you still have to practice patience. Okay. Uh, 
It wasn't last fall, but it was the fall of 2004. We and our neighbors have been involved in a 10-year dialogue with the Water Department on Maui in order to get a better water supply to our property. And if we do, then we can get building permits to build uh, the sanctuary that we're building there. And so we've been negotiating with them and trying to get an agreement with them. And we got an agreement four or five years ago. And, you know, if we would build the water system, you know, for about a mile coming to our property and da da da, then they would give us all water meters, or they would sell us all water meters. They don't give anything, they sell us all water meters. And uh, it was a massive undertaking. And we've had it engineered, and we've had the contractors, and we got bids, and it's just a prohibitively expensive project. So when the price was looking like it was going to be in the $700,000 to $800,000 range, I went to, I called up the deputy director and said, any way we can get some financial relief from this, because this is just killing us. It's too expensive. So I said, I'd like to have a meeting. So I drew up a, a memo of all the questions I wanted to ask him, all the considerations I wanted him to consider of how we could reduce the cost of the project for us. You know. So I went into the meeting, and there he was, the deputy director, and a couple of his engineers, and a finance guy from the water department, and I had my list. So I handed out a list to everybody, and I said, OK, point number one. Would it be possible to reduce the size of the tank from 10,000 gallons to 1,000 gallons or 4,000 gallons or something? You know, the tank is $280,000. And, you know, if we reduce the size, maybe it'll knock $100,000 off. So they had a discussion among themselves and referenced the, the book and, you know, section 2345ABC. And no, we're not able to do that because these requirements. Okay. How about reducing the size of the pipe from eight inch to six inch? That would reduce, you know, that would surely cut off some costs. And da, 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 da. so they had another discussion. Da, da, da. No, I'm sorry, we're not going to be able to do that. Okay. How about giving us our rebate back at the time we, you know, so instead of giving us a rebate over five years, you kind of suspend the whole rebate program and not have us pay it ahead. Had a discussion? No, that's against the rules. And so after a few more of these, uh, discussions where they came back with no, no, no. The deputy director looked at me and he said, uh, you're old enough to know, and you don't need me to tell you. Life's unfair. <laughs> Pardon me? In that moment, This flood went, went through my mind of just like, how dare you? And I was just, I, I could just see, you know, the possibility of reacting with rage, indignation, embarrassment, shame, screaming, anger. It's just, it was just, it just, you know, for, for I, well, it seemed like about a half hour. I was just sitting there kind of wondering, what am I going to do? <laughs> you know, probably it's five seconds, but the mind is, is quick. And so I saw all these options run through the mind. And it landed on, this is the way it is right now. Okay, point number eight. And it, it was just 
in that, it's just five seconds or 10 seconds of reaction in the mind, just like, this can't be happening to me. I don't want it. I don't like it. It's just, <laughs> you know, I don't. Uh, this is the way it is. Okay. And, and really, it just was gone. All that resistance, all that fear, all that embarrassment, all that anger, it's just gone. Okay. And what came on the heels of that acceptance was this understanding. This is the way it is right now. It can be dealt with. A joyful acceptance of, we can deal with that. Not because I thought so at the time, but because that was the training that my mind had gone through. It's just, you know what? There just isn't anything that you can't deal with. There isn't anything that you can't deal with or that can't be dealt with through practice. Maybe you can't deal with it, but practice can. I think it was Maladoma Somme, a shaman from Africa, teaches a lot in the States and leads a lot of men's, men's groups. He said something like, we owe an incalculable debt of gratitude to anything and everything that has supported us. Incalculable debt of gratitude. And for those of us on the path, we see. We just have this tremendous debt of gratitude to the Buddha and to the men and women, the monks and nuns that have brought these teachings to us so that we can actually practice them. It is a living tradition. It's not a dead tradition. It is a living tradition that has been kept alive for 2,500 years by people like yourself who've heard the teachings, practiced, realized them to some degree, and passed them on. And so we, we receive them. And the teachings that we hear and the practice that we engage in and the understandings that we realize, it's not just for this week or this lifetime even, but it's transforming the mind, the mind stream that has been wandering in samsara for eternity and will continue to wander eternally or until we disentangle our mind from suffering. How do you, how do you repay someone or some group, some condition, some that has given you the key to the end of suffering? Take them out to dinner? Well, yes, in a way. In a way. When I was a monk in, in Burma, you know, monks are renunciates, and they, they give up all of their uh, possessions, at least temporarily while they're a monk. They don't have use of them as a monk. But there are four requisites that a monk needs. Clothing, robes, food on a daily basis because they can't grow their own, or buy their own, or cultivate their own. 
requisites of clothing, food, shelter, they need a place to stay, a building, a, a monastery, and they need medicine when they're sick. Think about it. That's really all you need. Food, clothing, shelter, medicine. That's all monks are allowed. So when I was a monk, I, I didn't understand the rules initially, and I thought I could have a personal banker. I mean, I wasn't going to be an American over in Burma and not have any money to get myself out if I had to. So I gave my money to someone, and I thought, well, that's okay. If I need anything, I'll just have him get it for me. Then after I'd been a monk for a year, I found out or understood the nuances of the rules, and that wasn't allowed. So I gave it up. I said, do with it as you will. It's not mine. So then I was like totally The only thing I could do was to practice impeccably. And in return, I was supported. I was supported very well by the people of Burma, the, the monastery, within the monastery, my teacher, and with other students that knew me or knew of me, who wanted to support my practice. The only thing I could do was practice impeccably. You can't give them anything in return. You can't give them the robe back, you, you don't have anything to give, you don't have any money, you can't. All you can do is practice impeccably. And that's the way that monks can express their gratitude, is to, to, to in their appearance, in their behavior, in their demeanor, uh, you know, live the teachings. One of the qualities of mind that really comes out through practice is creativity. When the mind is loosened from its things got to be this way and we start seeing that things are the way they are whether you want them or not, you know, the mind just gets very creative in responding to any condition. I love going to Burma. And I love going to Burma because the Dharma is so alive there. For those of you who haven't been, I, you just can't imagine. You know, it's just everywhere. I mean, it's, it's, it's like, you know, Starbucks and Gaps in New York City. There's one on every block. You know, it's like in, in Burma, it's like, it's just monastery after nunnery, after pagoda, after temple, after... One, they're, just, they're just piled up on top of each other everywhere. You can't escape it. And, and constantly there's Dharma talks being chanted over loudspeakers. There's monks on alms round. There's nuns walking around with collecting their alms or getting, doing their uh, alms round. And it's just, you just see it. It's just, you see it, you hear it, you smell it. It's just everywhere. So when we go, we stay at a and b, a b where the owner, every morning, prepares rice and curries for us to offer to the monks who come on alms round. It's a great place to go. It's just so, it's just, it just makes you feel good to be in, in uh, the place where you, can you feel so inspired to, to practice generosity, to take the precepts, to visit with monks and nuns and monasteries. It's just wonderful. So this year, I was, I was 
again, back in Burma in, in January, February, practicing. And I was practicing at a monastery that is, uh, it is unbelievable. It is so noisy. It is just unbelievable. There's loudspeakers blaring day and night, you know, from the, the Burmese karaoke bars and the other monasteries, the monks are chanting or the nuns are chanting. It's just, and they're loud, loudspeakers. And in, in, this, in this particular section of town, the electricity's off, you know, 18 hours a day or more. And so they have to run generators, which happen to be right outside my room. They run generators to, to run the electricity things. And, you know, the, the pump that pumps the water up to the tank and splashes into the tank was also right outside my room. So it's about day three or day four, and you know, on day three or day four, your body's just killing you, your mind is just a mess, and it's just like, you know. And so I was taking a rest. I don't know, about six o'clock at night, I was just laying on my, on my bed, bored. And, uh, and uh, I was just in agony, you know, it's just like, uh, and, you know, the, the loudspeakers are blaring, and the pump is, the generator's running, and the pump is pumping, and the water's splashing, and the dogs are barking, and the chickens are, cruis- the chickens are crowing, and it's just like, this is a madhouse, you know. And you know what? It doesn't matter. You're in the heart of the Dharma, you're practicing, it's just, it's unbelievable. You know, all that doesn't matter. And you can practice. It just, it just goes to the back of your mind. You don't even pay attention to it after day four. <laughs> <laughs> but while I was there, I, I, um, I observed this one renunciate who just really inspired me, just inspired a tremendous amount of faith and just... You know, you just, you just really feel dharma in action. And humble and modest, not, not looking around, but very uh, restrained in sense behavior, very serene and gentle, diligent in practicing continuously. And in the dining room, I was, I was sitting at a little table with one elderly man who happened to be the father of the abbot, and he was, he was in Rangoon because he was getting some medical treatment, but he was just staying at the monastery. And, and every meal, this nun would bring this old man a little folded up tab of paper. And in the paper was his medicine, some medicine. And so she would bring it over to him and she'd give him a little attention and she'd open it up and say, now you take these, these medicines, you know? And she was, she was just so happy. She was so radiant. The, the, the beauty of her mind was just exuding from her. And so I was, re- I was just so inspired by her practice and her commitment to the Dharma. It was just amazing. So I felt moved to, to support her in her, in her practice. So I, I had it in my mind that I would ask her, you know, if, what she needed or how I could support her. So one time when she came to the table to offer this man his medicine, I said to her in Burmese, do you speak or understand English? And she said, no. 
And of course, I don't speak any more Burmese than that. <laughs> and so, end of conversation. So I said, well, hmm, uh, huh, okay. So I said, well, when it's time for me to leave, then I'll get a translator and, and, and speak to her and, and find out how, if she needs anything and how I could support her. Well, she left a few days before I did, and I didn't notice it. But when the day I was gonna leave, she, was, she wasn't around. So I went to the, uh, to the abbot and said goodbye, my goodbyes to him. And, in, in, uh, and just as a thought, I said, do you know that nun that was serving your father his medicine and da 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 da? So to make a long story short, he looked up where she lived and, and uh, she didn't live in Rangoon, but she was staying in Rangoon. So I got a translator, a couple of trans different translators and a couple of taxis and we eventually found the, the nunnery where she was staying, and I went to, uh, to speak with her. And I just asked her, I said, what's your life like? I just, I mean, I just really wanted to know what, what kind of life does somebody lead that, like that? And she said, and she told me, she just, you know, she, she lived with one other nun in a little town in Upper Burma, and they had a piece of land that somebody had given them 60 feet by 80 feet. That was their nunnery. And they had a building on it. And uh, they're just practice nuns. They don't teach, they don't stud, they're not study scholars, they just practice. They get up at four in the morning and they do their sitting and chanting and they go to, they go to town and get some uh, curries for their, for their meal, do a little alms thing. And they come back and they sit and they do their walk and they work in their garden three hours a day. Nuns can work in a garden. They work in their garden three hours a day. And they do an hour of devotion and they listen to a Dharma talk on tape for an hour. And they don't have any telephone. But they do have electricity. And they just live very simply and just do the practice. And she and the other nun had, were practicing at the monastery where I was. And they've been there several, they come for a month or two every year. And it was just so inspiring to have my perception of her commitment and dedication and purity of practice to have it confirmed by the fact that she is practice nun. You know, and it was just, uh, it was inspiring. It was really inspiring to see that, you know, there are people sincere to just hear the practice, hear the teachings and practice devoting their life to awakening. Not, not making a big deal of it, just living anonymously in order to awaken, to keep the teachings alive, to pass them on somehow through their, through their practice, through their uh, behavior. And it's that that I felt inspired to uh, support. There are many ways to express your gratitude for the Dharma, for hearing the Dharma, for practicing the Dharma, for realizing the Dharma. There are just many ways to serve others. And it will be necessary on your path to find a way to serve others. This awakening to just simply become a human being, a full human being,
making a commitment to a path worthy of your effort, accepting the path as it is, practicing impeccably, persevering joyfully, and expressing your gratitude. So let's sit for a moment. Let the words quiet down. There are the four resolves, the resolve for freedom, the resolve for truth, the resolve for generosity, and the resolve for peace. One should not neglect wisdom, should preserve truth, should cultivate generosity, and should train in peace. <laughs> 